0: Alright, so if you will, grab your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 5 this morning. We'll be finishing that chapter today. We'll be starting in verse 27, Let me get going here in a minute. So if you remember, last week we, we learned about Jesus healing the leper, and then we learned about Jesus healing the paralytic man, the paralyzed man, uh, who was lowered down to him from the roof. Uh, this week we're going to be learning about the kinds of people that, that Jesus calls to faith, and we're going to be learning about why Jesus is going to compare himself to these, these two ideas. First, to a physician, a doctor. Uh, and secondly, he compares himself to a bridegroom. Uh, and, and children, when you hear the word bridegroom, that gets confusing because it sounds like it has both the bride and the groom in there. Uh, bridegroom is the, the man, the husband, in a, in a wedding ceremony or situation. So, uh, And Jesus is going to compare himself to that. So we'll see what that is. Uh, But let's just jump right in, begin reading in Luke 5, verse 27. After he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The grass withers, the flowers fade. Let us pray. Father, we we thank you that we can come and meet together. We thank you that you're here and you call us to this. We, We thank you for your word. We ask that you would change us from us. We ask that you would teach us to rejoice always at the good news of our redeemed souls and to unashamedly desire that for others. Help us to understand this passage before us and for it to give us joy in the redemption that we have through Christ. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Well, let me start with a, a question right here from the start. It's this question, if you thought about your, yourself, the way you interact with people, what, what kind of people do you pursue or do you allow yourself, uh, allow into your life? Well, what types of people? Are they good people Are they just like you? Do they vote like you do? Do they love God like you do? It's just this question of, what what sort of people do we interact with? And uh, so let me just tell you this, and and most of you know this, in my childhood, my family growing up, um, actually my notes are not right, if you don't mind a second, let me just grab the right notes. (laughs) Okay. Uh, My family growing up, I, I met this guy uh, one time. His name was Guy, actually. Uh, maybe around fourth grade, fifth grade, and, and we kind of hit it off while riding bikes in the street. And We, street, and we wanted to, to hang out, and so we thought, well, you know, let's have our parents call each other, our moms call each other, and, and, and then we can hang out. And, and what ended up happening from that conversation was that I was allowed to come over to his house at a particular time for one single hour. Uh, that was the way it was going to go down. Uh, and while we were there, his mom followed us around the house every place we went, uh, right next to us. And, and that was the last time we were ever permitted to hang out together. Uh, sometimes later, I was riding my bike, and I saw a guy, so I ride over them and talk to him. And in the course of the conversation, he, he told me that he wasn't allowed to, to, to hang out with me anymore. Wasn't allowed to come over, wasn't allowed to do anything with him. He wasn't even allowed to ride his bike anywhere near my house. And this is, this is you know, suburb, suburban area. No, don't think hood. Um, And it was one of those things that was just so odd to me, because uh, later on, a few years later, I learned that his family was part of this fundamentalist Christian church. And the reason they wouldn't interact with us is that we weren't Christians. Um, It was a great, scary fear to them, I believe. So, listen, when we look in a passage like this, we see that Jesus is not like that. You see, after healing the paralytic, he, he leaves the house and at some point he's, he's walking out and he sees this man who, named Levi and he stops and he just looks at him. You can imagine the eye contact they're having. Now Levi is a tax collector, and, and we tend to just think, okay, another profession, but there's more to it than that, but, because in Rome, the way that tax collecting worked was this, uh, a person would bid on a region, like this region uh, is the region I want, and one person would say, you know what, I think I can get $90,000 and give it to, you, to the government in taxes, and the next person says, no, I think I can get $100,000, and the highest bidder is the one who would be given it, you know, you, you win this region, you're the tax collector for this region, and, and, and 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 they get the authority of the government behind them to go and do this now. Now, at the end of the year, they had to pay the government whatever that number was they bid. And so the the tax collector would have to give $100,000 if if that's what it was. But then everything over $100,000 was his to keep. Now... All the rules are a little weird about what's tax collecting and all that kind of thing. And so it led to a whole lot of corruption because he was motivated. The more that he could, he could twist out of people, get from people, and in any way he could, it would make him richer and richer and richer. And they were indeed very wealthy. Uh, other Jews saw tax collectors as traitors against their own people. And so Levi would have been considered you know, just a, a dirty lowlife by all the other Jews. That's the way they would have looked at him. And yet, here's this this holy man, right, named Jesus. That's all he knows about him. And he's looking at him with such a a contemplative look that Levi, you know, may have been nervously wondering, what does he want with me? Why is he looking at me? And then there's this, you know, we we see here in this story then that it reminds us that, that absolutely anybody can receive faith. Anybody you know. Jesus says to this disgraced sinner, follow me. And the call of Jesus compels Levi to come to Jesus. The call of, of Jesus is what our, our affirmation of faith this morning uh, called effectual calling. Meaning that the, the, call, the call creates the response. The same is true for, for all of us. Right? If you're a Christian, if you're facing Christ, at some point in your life you were, you were told the gospel, you learned it. Maybe it was reading in scripture or someone preaching or teaching or, or someone just answering all your questions about Jesus. But at some point, by the inward compulsion of the Holy Spirit, you responded and you followed the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happens, right? That's what happens here with Levi. And just like the four fishermen we saw at the very beginning of this chapter, Levi leaves everything and follows Jesus. Everything. What we're beginning to see as Jesus is calling his disciples is that there is no kind of following Jesus. It doesn't exist. There's not a, well, I kind of, kind of I follow him. His call is an invitation to total commitment. So with this call of, of Levi, who's later going to be called Matthew, uh, which is the name that means gift of God, a beautiful name is going to have, uh, we, we learn, though, here, though, that, that Jesus calls all sorts of people. And, and so there is literally no one on this planet right now that is outside the possibility of, of being called to God, of, of receiving the grace of Jesus Christ. There is hope of salvation for literally everybody you know still living. So then Levi's response to this joyous new life that Jesus has given him is is to throw this great feast, right? This huge party, then he invites the people he knows. And the people he knows are a bunch of other tax collectors like him. The very fact that he throws this party, this feast, though, tells us, uh, again, just how wealthy Levi was. And in fact, in terms of wealth alone, Levi gave up more than any of the other disciples when he decides to leave everything he has and to follow Jesus. And one of the beautiful things we see is that he does it with absolute joy. You see, this this joy should be what we constantly return to when when we remember our own salvation. Now that's a reality because the the, the salvation that we have is is more significant, greater than any other event in anyone's life ever. It's of greater significance than your marriage day. It is of greater significance than the birth of a child, a, a career accomplishment of some sort. He, you know, winning the lottery—you name it. This is a greater event in your life. And so, this feast that Levi shows is to, or throws, is to celebrate his new life in Christ. But, but it also has—it's uh, also this act of hospitality, and and it serves as a way to introduce his outcast friends to Jesus. Right. Uh, wanting our friends to know Jesus. That's a natural response of conversion. Having received mercy, we, we now want others to also receive mercy. But I don't know if that's how we really think all the time, is it? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, we, we've got some new neighbors that just moved in across the street from us. Um, they don't speak a lot of English. The best I've been able to tell so far, they're from some Pacific island, but not Hawaii. I don't know what that means. Um, but Beckham and I were watching them carry some stuff in the house. We went over and helped them carry these couches in, and they were not the best of couches. And my first thought was, how can we improve their life? How can we get them better stuff? Because this stuff's not great. Uh, you know, and, but I'm ashamed to say that my natural response at no point included this idea of you know, dreaming up, how can we introduce them to Jesus? I saw their temporal needs, but I didn't immediately see their spiritual needs. And as I studied this passage this week, I, I thought about, you know, why, why was their salvation not one of my first thoughts? And I, and I believe, if, if I'm honest, I, there are times where I've failed to truly appreciate that Jesus Christ has redeemed me. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I've become salvifically entitled. It seems like a modern phrase we might get to it. We just assume that it's, yeah, yeah, I am. Um... But I will say that's the beauty of of God's word, right? Because passages like this can can wake us from our slumber. They can invigorate our our joy of following Jesus, our our excitement of knowing that our our sins have been forgiven. And and, and I really hope that's what we're going to get from this. So so here is Jesus, and he's at this party with some of the most despised sinners in in the Jewish culture. And and there's an abundance of good food, and there's an abundance of wine. And listen, we're talking about real wine with real alcohol in it. More than likely, many of these tax collectors were also becoming drunk at this party. And that's that question then, right? Why, why is Jesus there? Why is this where he finds himself? That's what the Pharisees and the scribes want to know, right? And so keeping their distance, they're, uh, they're keeping their distance. And they ask this question, but, but it's not an honest question. It really isn't. It's this, this loaded, grumbling complaint of a question. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why? They've already found him guilty for it. The, the Pharisees, you know, they, they believe that if they hang out with sinners, that, that they're all, you know, obvious sinners especially, that that's a shameful thing to do, that somehow that's going to make them unholy as well. I think that's still a great fear of many Christians today. It's easy to look at a passage like Ephesians five seventeen through 14, which warns Christians, right? Don't have partnership with sinners. Don't take part in their evil works. And yet we need to understand there's a world of difference between being partners with sinners and caring about them and reaching out to them and spending intentional time with them and showing hospitality to them and wanting to reach them with the gospel. I played rugby my freshman year in college, and I don't know if you know anything, I don't know if all rugby teams are like this, uh, but uh, this particular team threw these notorious parties. Um, there were many who would end up drunk at these parties. And, and as a, a Christian, I was unsure, should, should I attend one of those parties or should I have nothing to do with those parties whatsoever? And, and they would invite us at practice and want us to come. Uh, there were some other Christians on the team, and there were two really groups. One, one group of them refused to associate with the team outside of practice and games, and I was talking to some of them, and they advised me, don't go to those parties, don't have anything to do with it, because if you do, it's going to hurt your witness. In other words, if, if people heard that you went to one of those parties, they'd assume that you're not a genuine Christian. Everything you had to say about Jesus would be of no, no use, no value. But there were a few other brothers in Christ who told me, you know, when we go to those parties, we don't get drunk. We don't even drink. But we laugh with them. We have great conversations with them. We take care of the guys when they get themselves into some kind of trouble. And then he told me, our, our, our presence at these parties doesn't harm our witness. Our presence at these parties and in our care for them as Christians, living like Christians in that environment, that, that is our witness. We find ourselves in a place where we can actually talk to these people about, about Christ. And I ended up going with that small group of guys who understood the Great Commission in that way. And, I, and we had each other, right? We weren't just foolishly running into one of these situations. But we watched God work in the lives of, of many of those crazy rugby players. And it was glorious to see. See, our, our passage today was, was part of the reasoning for why we we're willing to go to those parties. Because remember, the Pharisees asked Jesus, why are you at that party? That's what they wanted to know. Jesus' ultimate answer there is in verse 31, when he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, that's who needs the physician. Jesus compares himself here to a doctor. Um, because a doctor has to spend time in the presence of sick people, right? Right? You and I, we can. most of us are able to stay away from sick people. And that's how we protect ourselves. But, but the doctor has to actually be in their presence. He has to risk that to bring healing. That's, that's why Jesus does this. Jesus is at the party because these people, they need the hope that is found only in Jesus and nowhere else. It's important to remember that salvation isn't found in right behavior. Salvation is found in Christ. And here the Lord is is modeling how we're to interact with the lost now, you know, in that way. So, how you and I practice hospitality, how we engage with with sinners, and the way that this refers to sinners, right? How we fail to practice hospitality or, or engage with sinners, all of this reveals a bit about what our understanding of the gospel really is. Jesus did not come primarily to stop us from sinning. That's a result, right? That's something that happens as we are sanctified. But he didn't come primarily to stop us from sinning, but to die for sinners. It is your hope in, in right behavior or in right associations, or it is in the right, righteousness of Christ that's received through faith. Jesus then ends this conversation with those now famous words, right? I, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Repentance. Now, now, Jesus is not saying here that the Pharisees are really righteous. You, you could almost read that here, right? You're righteous. That's, I'm not here for you. In, in current terminology, right, the terms my, my children sometimes use, this is a, an ironic burn on them is what's happening. Did I use that right? <laughs> um, these Pharisees just think they're righteous. It's a self-righteousness. They're impressed with themselves. They're, they're like the Black Knight in Monty Python. Sam rolls his eyes at that, but, uh, you know, he's had both his arms and his legs chopped off, and he's on the ground, and he's still talking trash, you know. It's, it's but a flesh wound. I'm invincible. Th- that's the mentality here that, that these Pharisees have. What, what Jesus is telling these Pharisees is, Why would I spend time with you? you? You arrogantly and foolishly believe that you are righteous before God because of your religious works. You wouldn't believe anything I told you anyway. In order to receive faith in Christ, we must first accept that we are indeed sinners. And it's not just that one-time moment in your life, right? Listen, it's not just that we were sinners, but we are sinners. And if that might sound a little weird to you, right? Consider this, though. The Apostle Paul, when he's much older and he's mature and he's writing to Timothy, a, a younger pastor that he's trying to encourage. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Not I was the foremost, and look where I'm at now, but I am the foremost. He understood the depth of his sin. Christians who understand their own sinfulness and, you know, understand the grace of God. And in fact, they never lose the joy of being redeemed. They don't lose sight of others' need for the gospel because it's so freshly in their own understanding of their deep need. Let me ask you, you know, you're either a member here or many of you have actually seen when we've had the membership vows. Any of you remember what your first vow was? just throw your hand up if you do okay a few of you way too few of us actually know what vows we made i won't ask you about your marriage vows <clears throat> so here's the very first vow that you make when you come to be a member do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of god justly deserving his displeasure and without hope save his sovereign mercy right except his sovereign mercy the, the basic idea here is that you cannot be a good person, you cannot be a, a righteous person, and become a member of this church. Only sinners are accepted. That, that's the idea there. The, you know, the real question, I think, for us then is, is this. Is it possible that, that we've confessed with our, our words, with our mouths, right, that we understand, yeah, indeed, I am a sinner. I, I know that's the right thing to say, and we say it, but we don't truly believe that in our hearts. Understand, Christians certainly have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, given to us. Yes, we are truly saints of the Lord. That is an absolute fact if your faith is in Christ. But we're also still sinners. And yet we're so prone to forget that part. To forget we daily need Jesus and thus to rejoice that we daily have Jesus. So I want to look at one more aspect of Jesus' words, and and then we're going to move on to the next section, which we haven't read yet. I forgot to tell you that at the beginning. Um, There is this this mental or this this idea, this cultural image of Jesus that's just in our wider American culture. And and to be honest, America loves Jesus in this image, right? You've probably seen this. The idea is that it starts out very biblical, and it's based on this passage, right? There's Jesus, and he's with Sinners. And he's conversing with them, and he's laughing with them, and he's enjoying their presence. But, but that's where this cultural idea of Jesus stops. It doesn't include verse 32 in our passage here. It, it neglects the truth that while, while Jesus does give his time to notorious sinners, he, he does so with the gospel love. And by that, I mean he, he calls them to repentance. He doesn't just hang out with them for the sake of hanging out. He calls them to repentance, to confessing their sin and turning to Him where grace is freely given. For for us, that means if we tell others about Jesus, if we tell about His his love, but we don't mention repentance, then we're calling people to something less than what the true gospel is. You've got to understand what the mode, what the purpose of Jesus interacting with people is. So then let's, let's read the next section. It's going to begin in verse 33. I hope you have your Bible still open. Uh, if not, you can just listen. The, the Pharisees are, are speaking again. They respond back to Jesus. Uh, and here's what they say. <clears throat> they say, The disciples of John <clears throat> fast often <clears throat> and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So this accusation that they're making to Jesus' disciples is this. Y'all don't take religion serious. You don't do the things you're supposed to do. And they're basing it because right now you're at this party with these people. But look how serious we are with our fasting over here. Now, in the Old Testament, the the only time that fasting is commanded is for one single day every single year. It's for a festival called uh, Yom Kippur, uh, which is also known in English as the Day of Atonement. Uh, You can learn about it in Leviticus 16 if it really interests you. But it's just the only time that that fasting is commanded. And and while there are other places in the Old Testament where fasting occurs, where it's practiced, uh, there's three other reasons. Uh, One is uh, along with prayer during a major crisis. Right? Something huge happened, let's fast, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, it also happens during a time of mourning. Someone has, has died, something has been lost, <clears throat> and during that time of mourning they'll fast. It also happens during a time of confession and Repentance. You know, the, the tearing of the robes. And, and Lord, you know, we, we, we've been, it's been brought to our attention just how much we've sinned against you, God. And it's during that time of repentance. Uh, repentance and preparing for the coming of Jesus. That's why John the Baptist's disciples are, are fasting. That's why they make that reference to them. But the Pharisees, they're fasting for a different reason. They're fasting because they, they want to show everybody just how religious they are. In fact, they, they added, you won't find it in Scripture, but they added this rule that said all, all good Jewish people are going to fast every Monday and every Thursday. That's the day to fast. And, and, and so every Monday and Thursday, the, um, some of these Jews who just had this self-righteousness about them wanted to make sure everyone knew that they were fasting, and so they'd be completely gloomy and just make sure everyone knows, oh, he's fasting, he's really holy, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but notice here, Jesus does not condemn fasting. He doesn't. Remember back in chapter 4, Jesus himself fast 40 days out in the wilderness. In Matthew 6, verse 16, Jesus gives instruction on when you fast, assuming that Christians are indeed going to fast. He, he doesn't content, condemn fasting. And, and so what we're seeing here is Jesus is not having a problem with fasting, but the issue is that this is not the proper time to fast. And so he explains this by comparing himself to a groom, right? Bridegroom, groom, the man at a wedding. This is significant because all throughout the Old Testament, we, we see God the Father who is, refers to himself as, as the groom, as the husband of Israel. And beginning here, and Woven throughout the entire New Testament, is this image of, of Jesus as the bridegroom of the church. This image teaches us a few things. First of all, it, it teaches us the, the tender love by which Jesus loves us, his people. It also tells us that we have a part in everything that belongs to Jesus. You know, just like a husband traditionally gives his, his wife his name. You know, just like a, a husband and, and wife would have equal ownership of, of property and finances, this, this one flesh union means that everything is shared in that regard. We we have so much because of our union with Christ. And, and so then Jesus answers them this way because at Jewish wedding parties, they were awesome. They're so much better than ours, actually, because they would spend a week of celebrations. They would take time off from whatever was going on and do that. And, and during these celebrations, the people would eat great food and they would drink good wine and they would joyously laugh with each other. But one thing that they never, ever did is they never fasted during a wedding. And they didn't do it because that would absolutely hinder the joy of of everyone else involved, including themselves. And and so his point, Jesus' point here, is that that since Christ is here, the bridegroom is here, salvation has come, and, and thus this is not the time to fast. They're with Jesus. This is not the time. The time for fasting was going to come later, after Jesus had been crucified. It was going to come later, after Jesus' ascension, right? Uh, today, we live in a time where we both feast at the table of, of Jesus, but we also fast when we seek the Lord during times of repentance, times of prayer, uh, you know, specifically focused prayer. You know, all, all the while, though, we, we know that we are awaiting for an ultimate feast that we're going to have with the Lord. And Revelation nineteen nine calls this feast the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's this tiny little taste, this tiny little picture of this huge feast that we'll have with the Lord someday. So let's read the last section. This is some of the, the more confusing things you'll find in Scripture here at first. It'll make sense, I hope, by the end of this. But uh, beginning in verse 36, <clears throat> Jesus is what he's talking about here. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the old will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. See, the first two illustrations here are telling us that trying to put something uh, new into into or onto an old structure is simply not going to end well. In both cases, right? Uh, the garment will be ruined, and the wine skin, as it ferments and gas is produced in there, it will destroy the the new wine will destroy the new wine or the old wine skin. Now, now Jesus is telling them here that that his arrival that things are changing with that. Okay. And he needed to say this because he knows that there's people like the Pharisees, like are about to happen here, that they're going to want to take small little bits of what Jesus says and just apply it to their completely legalistic way of trying to find righteousness to begin with. And Jesus wants to put a stop to that. Um, Ligon Duncan summarizes this as if Jesus is saying this. He says, that's the problem with you Pharisees. You keep wanting me to bring back the good old days of Israel. I'm not here to do that. I'm here to do something so much bigger. To call sinners to faith, to union with me through faith. Jesus is saying the ceremonial law is not coming back again. All those things that make you feel righteous, they won't make you righteous. Ceremonial righteousness is gone. Real righteousness is here. And Jesus is is already the fulfillment, right, of, of God's covenant promises. And we now are only awaiting the, the final consummation, the full consummation of all those promises. And so then that, that last words of Jesus there in verse 39, right? He, he says it, it switches the angle and it's a little confusing at first. It says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. What, what he means when he switches it up here is that, that people usually think of old wine as the good wine. Right? Anywhere you go, the more expensive wine is going to be the old wine, typically. And, and yet that's not always true. When the Old Testament speaks of new wine, it, it uses it as this, this phrase to express this euphoric joy at, at the presence of God. The, the redemption that Jesus is bringing is, is fresh like new wine. And, and yet the Pharisees, uh, like many still today, are unwilling to take a taste of the new wine in Christ. That's what they're saying. They're, no, you know, the the old wine's good. We want nothing to do with that. And that's the way many of these people are going to respond to Jesus. As we finish up, I I do want to come back to that original question. What what sort of people do you pursue or let into your life? I mentioned the guy, Guy. Um, It's hard to say. But I mentioned him and his family. They had absolutely no place for me in their life. Uh, I can remember feeling rejected, not fully understanding it, when he told me he wasn't allowed to play with me. Why? What's wrong with me? Um, I couldn't put words into it at that point, but I knew it it didn't feel good. Uh, I will say I'm thankful that there were other Christians in my life, uh, Keith Carpenter and Aaron Armstrong, who befriended me, who invited me into their group of friends, who invited me to their church events, who said, Yeah, you know, come on. Um, We want you to be a part of this. I'm thankful that there were other families who, uh, like the Wendells, who invited me into their home, who invited me around their table to to share a meal with me. These people have had huge impacts in my own life. It it was through the hospitality of patient Christians in my teenage years that I was introduced to Jesus. And I'll I'll be eternally, literally eternally grateful to the Lord for the work that he did through those people. So my, my prayer for us as a church, right, is that we would... We would be a people who care about the lives and the souls of others. And I know it's, it's not as simple as always opening your door and letting everybody in at every moment. There is a, a protective sense to this. I know it's not that simple, but, but to, to care about the souls and, and the lives of other people, to wrestle through what wisdom looks like in those areas. That's why, if you take your bulletin real quick and you turn back to the very front, if you've been here a while, you probably don't even read it. You don't even notice it anymore. But that's the reason we have this quote in the front of our bulletin that says this. And, And we're going to close with that It says, To all who are spiritually weary and seek rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire victory, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who are strangers and want fellowship, To all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to all who will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we we do. We ask for wisdom. Wisdom to know when to reach out to people unlike us. And how to be wise so that we don't harm our own faith or that of our family. Lord, give us wisdom for we want to reach the lost and we wish to be hospitable and we desire to be used for the gospel. And and what that looks like is not always simple. So give us confidence in your word. Give us confidence in the the work of the spirit in people's life. Give us wisdom to know how to uh, apply these things to each and every situation in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.